You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Michael Frank. Hello, is this Michael Frank? Speaking. Hello, Michael. It's Paul, Paul Holdengraber calling you. How are you, Paul? I am very well. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm, I'm really delighted to talk to you. As I am to you. And, um, you're just publishing now The Mighty Franks. And I'm wondering how it feels for you to have come to this point where you're writing at this moment in your life, this memoir? Well, Paul, quite honestly, it's wonderful and a little bit surreal at the same time. I've lived with this experience and this story since my childhood and have tried writing it different ways over over the course of my life and finally hit on, I think, the solution. And uh, it's, a, it's a process of letting go of a very big story, in a sense, although you're never quite done with it. I'm already planning the prequel and the sequel, since there's only so much you can put on 305 typeset pages, I've discovered. So this was, this was long to come and long germinating for a very long time. It was. Do you, do you feel that you needed that time to, to resolve it, as you said, or do you feel that in some way, um, having written it now, you really have resolved it? I don't think you ever wholly resolve a story that, that captures you and haunts you to the degree that this one did me. But I think what I did achieve finally was enough life to have acquired enough distance from some of the more dramatic events that I uh, describe. And only with distance and reflection and compassion can you come to put down on paper stories about people who have really troubled you or awakened you at the same time. Awakened you. I mean, we'll be speaking a little bit about how they they uh, awakened you, as it were, awoke you. Um, when I when I spoke to you last, you mentioned a line to me which I really love, and yes. which I'd like you to explore a little bit. I'd be which happy. is, that I think, comes from Ruth Asawa, yes. who was a California Japanese American California born and based wire artists artist in general who uh, whose work I came to know as I've come to study art and made in in my place of origin which is uh, comes with adulthood I think when you get distance from where you've grown up you begin to look at it and see what it is that was going on there before your time and during your early years to see if there's anything of interest and that's of course a great deal and she had this wonderful line uh, describing her own work in which she said, a line can go anywhere. And, of course, she intended that visually. She worked uh, on paper. She worked. She made prints. And largely, though, she made these fantastically elaborate wire sculptures, um, which are often suspended from the ceiling, and they're orb-like, and they're mysterious. They look a little lunar. They look a little otherworldly. 
and yet they also have a basis in craft. And so she had a very hands-on approach to her work. And, you know, I think of something that Virginia Woolf used to say. She used to often express the physical pleasure she took in putting uh, ink on paper. She used, famously used violet ink. And I think there's, there's a certain craft-like approach to putting lines down that are shared by both visual artists and writers who handwrite and even writers who type. So that's one reason that line appealed so much to me. Another, of course, is because when you can master the line, meaning a line of language or dialogue or verse, you really can capture any experience, anything you imagine, anything you have lived. But it takes quite a while to get there. And it can go in any direction. Exactly. Um, you know, you can go back and forward in time, which is essential if you're going to write a memoir or a novel or a story. It can uh, skip farther into a story and circle back with flashbacks, with references. It can narrate and it can form dialogue and it can also recapture dialogue and it can also make parenthetical asides. All of those wonderful techniques that language and storytelling offer us all begin with mastery of the line. Mastery of the line, you know, I, I remember a conversation I once upon a time had with William Kentridge mm -hmm. where he said, drawing is taking a line for a walk. And I found that line totally compelling um, then, 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 then I just it's funny that it, it's, that of course evokes other associations immediately in me because tell me when you get stuck when you're writing moving yourself physically out of the space in which you've been sitting or, or focusing can often free that line so taking a, wine for, a line for a walk means also maybe taking a walk will give you your line back or give you the line you've been searching and and of course what is so interesting is now we're using the word line in so many different uh, with so many different meanings give your line back yeah. is uh, you know it, it it becomes rather extraordinary to think of it as motion the ne ne necessity of motion for emotion and you know that line that kentridge mentioned i found out later was a very famous line by paul clay mm. and the way that kentridge explained drawing is taking a line for a walk was by saying Are we walking the line, or is the line like a dog walking us? And that's fascinating to me. You know, I, uh, I often hear a sentence, the rhythm of a sentence, before I quite know what it's supposed to say. And, and that would be my equivalent, I suppose, in writing of a line walking me, commanding me to do something, finding it finding the solution to that sound isn't always so easy, but I do often hear it first, and so that, that's my association to, to that remark. There's another thing to say, which is, uh, as you probably remember, the central figures uh, in this memoir, my aunt and uncle, who were screenwriters, and of course screenwriters are always writing lines. That's right, that's lines right. Lines of dialogue figured very prominently in my childhood and also in, in this book. People who spent their days honing perfect speech, perfect responses, perfect uh, stabs into time, if you will, dialogue in short, uh, also did the same when they were done writing, and that's a real challenge to live with, to be around people who speak so perfectly and so sharply. And so 
that line again. It's so present in 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 everything I think of with regard to writing and being. Really, I want you to talk, Michael, about that challenge, because in a way, talking about that cha challenge is a way for me to ask you to talk about the mighty Franks. Well, thank you. So a line can go anywhere. Uh, I'm circling back for a second. Uh, for me, isn't an auto wasn't I should say an automatic experience. I had to learn how to help that line go too. And what that meant for me was that I had to feel free enough to let my line go anywhere. And that was very difficult growing up in a family full of very loquacious, yes. very. Uh, opinionated, very yes. determined storytellers yes. who seem to live and die by the control they exerted over their language, the language around them, the stories around them, both of, uh, with regard to the past and with regard to life as it was unfolding in actual time. It's a very daunting thing to be a child coming of age and into consciousness in a context where people are so powerful in their language because you are not, as a child, so powerful in your language. You're uncertain. You're diffident. You're searching. You're formulating what you think and what you feel. And to be told how reality is, how reality was, was a very complicated and often quite difficult experience for me. Can you give us some details, some details of when it was really daunting, when it was really difficult. Oh, always in moments of conflict, of course. So uh, my aunt and uncle were very opinionated people. So was my grandmother. I, there were many, many storytellers in the family. And so first of all, it, would, it could begin with something as simple as having your own opinion about a book or a movie or a play you'd gone to when you were, say, in your teens with them. Later on, it could have to do with looking at uh, behavior that was sometimes at first just a bit extreme but as time moved forward very extreme and as an adolescent and young person in my 20s when i tried to assert my point of view on how our family had evolved uh, when i tried to ask some questions about my aunt's behavior she staged very major dramatic scenes when we were young and as we got older anytime we i'm speaking of my brothers and myself right now tried to pull away tried to find our own way through the family structure find our own way into the world there would be explosions and attacks and verbal pyrotechnics that haunt all of us still to this day and so asserting my own language my own point of view often brought on these violent reactions in my aunt and also in my uncle it gives you a very interesting relationship to your own use of language i must say so in 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 a sense would it be would i be right to say that you always felt as though you were on stage that you were always asked to perform i i often think of of that extraordinary book in my view of Irving Goffman, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, where he talks about staged authenticity. That's a beautiful way to put it. I would say both on stage and on edge, which is a very anxious combination. Yes, you are on stage because you had to be also on your toes, but you are on stage because you are on edge since someone else was so determined to control the, the narrative that the 
there wasn't a lot of room for an opposing point of view. And when you found your strength to assert it, uh, the consequences were dramatic, ridiculous in some sense. But, you know, as a child and a young person, you... You live in more fear of the of the all powerful adults in your in your life uh, than you do when you move farther into your own life and feel much much freer. And and your and, own and, and, and and thus um, we come full circle back, as it were, to the line, because finding the freedom in the line going anywhere is really finding a way of telling your own story, finding your own voice, not being controlled by someone else at all times to tell the story in a certain way. You free, Absolutely. You and free. of course, the only, the ultimate place to do that is on the page. Right. You know, it's funny, I... Is uh, it, is it revenge? That FSG asked me to read my own audio book, which was a very interesting experience that began in a kind of claustrophobic anxiety in that hot booth. Then it moved on to a period of uh, frustration with the author for some of his more, his longer and more complex sentences. But then by the end of the, that long and memorable week, I realized this in a sense is what I've been waiting for the whole time that I've been writing and thinking about writing this book, which was to have someone hear my story and it was that beautifully passive quiet microphone in that room that gave me in a sense the 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 pinnacle let's say of this of this this journey in in in, in nearly in analytical terms in uh, one might say finally you are being heard most certainly you're not you're not in the, in the purest <clears throat> sense of heard there you know no yes. one challenging interrupting questioning criticizing, denying, <coughs> blinding, dismissing, which was really the sum total of active verbs in, uh, at, at a, for a very key periods of my childhood. Would you say this, this book is in, in some way an act of revenge? You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I don't think so. I think revenge and uh, and memoir writing is a very tricky a very tricky area of conversation and of behavior I think if I had sought to revenge with this book it wouldn't be the book that it is because another reason that my line was free I think to go anywhere was that I was not writing out of anger as they may have been when I first started trying to tell this story as a novel many years ago. I had to live enough, I think, to be finished with the feelings of resentment and anger so that I could see beyond them, see beyond anger into what the Buddhists see at the root of most anger, which is the fear and the insecurity and the unhappiness that was driving some of that extreme behavior of my aunts. And only then, and only as she aged, and only as my uncle was dying, and only as time had passed, did I feel free enough in the deepest sense to write the best book I could. So I don't think, for me, that this is a book written out of revenge. I'd like you, Michael, because I want to give people who are overhearing, as it were, our conversation, to hear your voice. And one hears it loud and clearly throughout the book, but nearly as a kind of hors d'oeuvre, as a way of making people desirous of reading the whole book. I'd like you to read the first two pages. I would which, be delighted. 
which and as this it is called overheard. Yes, which is but, which is perfect, isn't it? It's uh, a tracy, really. That overheard is it's the hors d'oeuvre, the antipas. Yeah, well. and and you know, uh, I I have to interject here because I've I've always loved um, the the story of Walter Pater and Oscar Wilde. Uh, Peter had a small, tiny little voice, and he was teaching Plato to Oscar Wilde. I think, was it Oxford or Cambridge? I think it was Oxford, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he was teaching in one of those fine schools, and at the end of the class, he came up to Wilde and said, Walter, Walter, did you hear me today? And supposedly, Walter said to um, uh, Oscar Wilde, I'm sorry, Oscar said to Walter Pater, he said, we didn't hear you, we overheard you. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, so now, now is, is, is your time to read those two pages, which in a way, um, you can riff off because it really, it, it gives the reader a sense of, as it were, where you came from or who actually wanted you to come from somewhere. My feeling for Mike is something out of the ordinary. I will overhear my aunt say to my mother one day when I'm eight years old. It's stronger than I am. I cannot explain it. He's simply the most marvelous child I have ever known, and I love him beyond life itself. Beyond life itself. At first, I feel lucky to be so cherished, singled out to receive a love that is so vast, but then I stop to think about it. I am not sure what it means, really, to be loved beyond life itself. Do I love my own mother this way? Does she me? Is such a thing even possible? And why me and not my two younger brothers? What do I have that they do not? I wish he were mine, my aunt blurts after a moment. From where I am crouching on the stairs in the entry hall, I can feel the weather in the room change. A long, tense pause open up opens up between the two women. I hear them breathing back and forth into that pause. They're sitting at right angles to each other, I know, my aunt on the sofa, my mother in the chair next to it. This is how they always sit in our living room, not face-to-face, but perpendicular, so that they don't have to make eye contact if they don't want to. I wish you had a child of your own, my mother says carefully. Ever the second fiddle, the third born, the diplomat. So do I, says my aunt in a pitched, emotional voice. Maybe you would be a different person if you did. My mother does not say this. She thinks it, though. Everybody in our family does. But that's not what happened. This is. I I must say I, I love those last two words. <laughs> I hope make the reader want to turn the page yes. at the very least. Um, tell me, though, why those two words? I mean, is that to give the the reader a sense of veracity, a sense of searching for truth? That's a good question. I think absolutely veracity. Uh, I think it's a turn on my imagining what my mother was thinking. 
thinking in a moment when, of course, I couldn't know what she was thinking. This would be another example, I might say parenthetically, of a line going anywhere. You know, there's this great line of Henry James, which uh, he said, or wrote rather, after he published his own memoir, Notes of a Son and Brother, in which he said that when you're writing about your very early childhood, it's important to live back imaginatively. And some of that, of course, has to happen when you're you're recording or trying to recapture events that happened so long ago. And so I think what I've done in that, hope I've done in that little snippet is try to live back imaginatively, put myself back imaginatively into my mother's shoes. I do know her very well. I do know how she thought. I can't say I knew that she thought that in that moment. But I feel fairly certain that it's the sort of thing that would have occurred to her. And then I'm turning it by saying, that isn't what happened, because I can't know. And then I proceed to tell you what did happen. And it's sort of, in a way, my opening up my Pandora's box, my Madeline, whatever you want to choose as the analog, it is my opening up of the story that is about to unfold. And, and this, this return to, to one's early childhood is such a difficult thing to undertake. It is it so... Is, and you know, I think the hardest thing, there are so many difficult things, Paul, but one of them was uh, knowing who these people became and evolved into later in life and also knowing who they were in earlier life and how to present them in their earlier life as experienced by me in my earlier life without inordinately foreshadowing some of the complexity, the darkness, and the conflict that were to come. And people have said that I, I do that well. That was quite difficult for me. It required quite a lot of pairing away of uh, interpretation and and retrospective uh, insertions and, and led me more in a way into the techniques of uh, fictional storytelling. Not that I was writing fiction, but I had to rely more on unfolding stories in actual time, in dialogue, in scenes, and less editorializing. That's, that's, that's... That was, that was a, a writerly challenge, but I think it served the story well in that it allows the reader to feel some of the magic of my aunt that I felt very distinctly as a child, some of the wonder I felt at my parents' and my aunt and uncle's situation. As you know, my parents and my aunt and uncle were two sets of siblings who married each other, brother and sister, married sister and brother. The two mothers of these uh, families, my grandmothers, lived together for 12 rather unhappy years. I grew up in this very strangely intertwined, and to me as a child, quite enchanted, if also at the same time quite tangled world, recapturing it and reconstituting it with a certain innocence and authenticity was the first and central challenge of uh, writing this book. And you know, you, you were mentioning Henry James, one of my favorite lines from James is the preface to the Aspern Papers, yes. where he says, I delight in a visitable, the visitable tangent. Past, of course, yeah. that's one of mine, too. Yeah, visitable, tangible, palpable this, past. Right, the and, visitable, tangible, palatable 
pal- past, is that it? No, visible, tangible, palpable past. Palpable, um, right. And, and, you know, to, to in some way re-experience, which is so difficult, the feeling of it all, the smell of it all, the taste of it all. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, when you were a younger man, as it were, did you imagine that you would be writing books? And did you ever imagine that you would be writing a book such as the one that you've you've uh, published just now? Well, yes, in fact. You know, one thing that I think James goes on to say in that quote is that it's important to be able to reach back as though across, and I'm paraphrasing, as though reaching a, uh, back across a table. That's right. That, isn't that it? Or That's absolutely just right. Of side or just, just out of view or just in view, as it were. And I think that I, for some reason, was alert to the fact that I would be doing that at some point in my life, that it would be the challenge of my life. And I think that the reason for that is, again, having had my own voice so uh, unacknowledged for a long time, all I could do was store up my impressions, store up my researches, store up that collection of objects across the table. And so, yes, I think I knew from very early on that I would one day be determined to tell this story. One one day you had to tell your story uh, in your voice. And I remember, Michael, a, a, a moving moment we shared together where I told you the story that you felt I had to tell, which maybe someday... Um, I will find myself uh, visiting that tangible past, as it were, but it isn't a tangible past that is my own. It's a tangible past of my parents who emigrated from Vienna to Haiti. There was a very small Jewish uh, uh, group of uh, Jewish refugees who ended up in Haiti, and you felt I should somehow if not exercise, at least find a way of reaching across that table. But it's such a different thing, because in my case, I really don't know. It would be investigating people who now are no longer alive and investigating a past whose fragrance I really don't know. In your case, you were visiting a tangible past. You were visiting a past where you had played a great role. Well, I agree with that, and I don't agree with that, Paul, because, yes, in this book, I, I'm drawing on very much actual lived experience, my own. But I, I, I have left unwritten, as of yet, uh, the experience of the, of the generation before, which I feel bear down so significantly uh, on the experiences I've written here. So the parallel to your parents' life, as immigrants to Haiti, which I find so compelling, would be, in my case, many-stranded, but centrally would be the childhood and young married life of my paternal grandmother, therefore the mother of my aunt and my father, who was a a very awake person. It was clear from uh, from when she was young, she excelled in school, she went to Reed, she went to Berkeley, she had ambitions creatively, she wrote, she had a radio show, she ended up in 1939 as Louis B. Mayer's story editor at MGM. 
And throughout all of this, she kept a diary. So I've been haunted by this document, by its unreachability, because uh, I, for a long time, was forbidden from seeing it. And I've also been haunted by what went on in her life and in her unhappy marriage that I think laid the groundwork for some of the extreme things that happened in uh, my aunt and uncle's life and therefore in my early childhood. So I think that visitable past sometimes requires, you know, a longer reach across a bigger table, but I think it can be very present in our lives, in our consciousness. And in fact, it's one of the next things I hope to write is about my grandmother and her her own journey with all of its complications that I think so formed uh, who my aunt became later on. You know, one passage in The Mighty Franks that I find absolutely extraordinary um, is the first time that your aunt feels that you are indeed a writer. Mm. And she calls you up to tell you as much. Can you, can you in some way give a little, a little, I mean, you can absolutely read it or you can tell it. I just well, find I think it. I'll tell it because, uh, it's a long, it's a longish interlude in the book. But yes, uh, of course, as part of the whole, um, Mighty Frank ethos, and I should say that the Mighty Franks was a, a name invented by my grandmother, the woman I was just describing, who, when she came to California in 1939, not only shed her marriage, though she kept her husband, if that makes any sense to you, she shed her past life in the Northwest, and she also shed her name, which at that point had been Francis Goldstein and changed to Francis Frank, and she decided to take her daughter's name because Harriet, when she named my aunt Harriet Frank Jr., was a writer's name. And at that point, Harriet Frank Jr. was simply Harriet Frank, and Harriet Frank Sr. decided to become Harriet Frank Sr. Complicated to follow, but anyway, it's an unheard of thing, as far as I know, in the history of letters and life, that a mother would decide to take her daughter's name. She wanted Harriet Jr. to be a writer, as Harriet Jr. wanted everyone who came across her, her screen in life, her field in life, to become a writer. But the encouragement for me was very mixed. There was a strong message that I should be a writer, but whenever I, I, I made my first attempts, it wasn't always so comfortable until the passage you're speaking of. I returned from a trip to Europe, uh, for part of which I spent part of which I spent with my aunt, and I wrote a travel diary. I wrote up my travels and gave them to her, and she was so extremely impressed with them that she summoned me to her house, which I called the Maison, as she called it, which was near where we lived in Laurel Canyon, a French-style chateau-like mansion in miniature. She sat me down by the fireplace and told me that I had a great career as a writer ahead of me. And, of course, I was thrilled. Until that point, I thought I was going to be an artist, which was, I had been drawing since I was a child. I still draw today. That is the happy part of that story. I'm, I'm suspecting you might like me to tell you the next. Well, I do. And, and, and I, I might, I might, um, read a paragraph from it. 
um, where, where uh, she says, this, you, you say, this happened on a Friday afternoon. Not an hour later, I received a phone call from my aunt. Michael, I must speak to you now, she said in a high animated voice. I cannot wait for you to come over. I am just going to tell you on the telephone. I am utterly bedazzled by what you have written. This is the most delightful travel narrative imaginable, so refined and specific and perceptive, and expressed with such evocative, restrained language. And of course, he he was such was a certain familiar person brightening matters up at the midpoint. I have to say I had no idea that you had this kind of talent. You are a writer, the real thing. Goodness me, that you are. You do a better job than I could, Paul. Well, um, it's it's a fantastic paragraph, especially one might say. I mean, she's setting you up. Uh, she's putting you up on the highest possible pedestal, only to do what? Well, first of all, you don't set up a an 18-year-old on such a high pedestal because there's nowhere to go from there but down. But you certainly don't expect her to be the woman to be bringing you down a mere six months later when, uh, following that phone call, what happened? I sat myself down. I put away my sketch pads and my pencils. I centered on my desk my newly... Uh, uh, acquired Adler electric typewriter, and I started writing short stories. What else? I was going to be a writer, and I worked over them like a dog for six months. I wrote, I think, a series of six stories. I revised them. I reworked them. I typed them up, and as with the charming travel narrative, I delivered them to who else? The expert writer in the family, my aunt. This time, no phone call came. Time went by. More time. Anxiety. Pardon me? Anxiety. Anxiety, fear, worry. Days passed, and then a call did come, and she summoned me again to the maison and uh, sat me down where we usually sat in front of the fire with cookies and tea and talked about Dickens and Trollope and Virginia Woolf and Colette, the household gods. Here instead, there was no fire, no tea, no cookies, no household gods, only my pages, which were very rumpled looking and stained with uh, the teacups and what have you. And she proceeded to tell me that these, that in, in essence, that what I had written was garbage. The, the phrase she used, which seared itself into me that day and kept repeating itself for way too many years afterward, was that what I had written was not art, but artifice. As good an example, I might say, in an aside of my aunt's brilliant dialogue making as I could possibly come up with to, to show you. Not art, but artifice and you know as i say in the book and as i say openly to anyone now to you now well what what do you expect you know i was 18 years old i'd had a very strange childhood i was not very self-aware for all that observing and gathering all that recording and noting that i did i had no idea what to do with it i wasn't free enough my line was nowhere near ready to go anywhere all that eavesdropping all that eavesdropping, I used to spend hours listening to the adults 
from the, from my very earliest consciousness of the adult world, I was desperately eager to understand. And that was her reaction to the next wave of writing, the next example of writing that I gave her. It was, I think, the last thing unpublished I ever put into her hands. You know, I just heard you, as you were telling the story towards the end of this sentence, sighing. Um, as if by telling me this story, you were re reliving it. And the sighing was, um, it, to me, an indication perhaps of, of the pain, uh, that, that this may have caused. And it, to, to some extent, she, it, you, you were surrounded in a world where being on stage in the way we spoke about it before was a world where artifice ruled, where you, right. you, 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 something I'm very familiar with myself, where you, you quote, and I still do, I suffer from quotomania, I often <laughs> say, you quote all kinds of writers because they, they offer you a way, nearly a way out. You know, I mean, this is my segue to give you a bit of a quote that's in my head these days. It comes from Vivian Gornick in her, her last book. She said, release from the wounds of childhood is a task never completed, not even on the point of death. And so, yes, I can retell that story and sigh because it's still a difficult story to tell all these years later. Maybe someone else in a different life, in different shoes in a different childhood would uh, make it a, a more festive or lighthearted or ironic or self-deprecating uh, anecdote, but I'm not there. No, but you know, the, the, what, is, what is tremendous is that your, your story is singular in, in your family. Your, your siblings did not, as far as I can understand, suffer from these kind of very, very strong expectations. It's true, mostly. Uh, I was the firstborn of three boys, and uh, I've spent some time in my life studying the fate of the fate and destiny of sibling order, birth order. And I've, I've certainly learned, both from reading and from observing other families, that the first child is, of course, I mean, it's so logical and so obvious almost to be beyond noting, but the first child is is the most susceptible because there's so much, so much weight, so much expectation, so much undistracted attention and focus on that one first and only child. So I, in one sense, absorbed a great deal of this for my brothers. I also, uh, you, you know, it must be said, and I say it openly and with, with a great deal of appreciation, I also learned a great deal from these people. I was uh, exposed to a great deal from these people. I was formed deeply and profoundly in ways good and far less than good by these people. And I think my brothers had a certain, uh, at first a certain confusion, then a certain jealousy, but I think they rather quickly, being fairly savvy people themselves, came to understand that they were in a way safer, uh, not having been as vulnerable to my aunt and uncle as they were. 
semicolon here or m dash, uh, that is not to say that my next in line brother, uh, Danny, was um, entirely free from some of my aunt and uncle's uh, performances, let's say. Yes, um, performance may be exactly the right, the right word, but in, in some sense they were more sp- they were more spared than you and as we think yeah. as we think about our lives and we think about you know after such knowledge what forgiveness and we try to begin to to think would we have preferred if we could rewrite our story to have been to have been happy you lost me in there a minute paul no, it doesn't matter. I will just say, would we have preferred if we could rewrite the uh, yeah. story? That to, is, isn't that the question? To to have been happy. I mean, is is childhood not to some extent also the exploration of what happiness can afford one in a lifetime? I'm nodding and thinking at this one for just a moment. Uh, how do you trade... The known for the unknown. Right. You know? Of course. You aren't the person... How do you imagine yourself being a different person? It's uh, not really possible. You know? You can imagine characters other than you, based on you. I write short stories. I'm working on a novel now. You can imagine yourself into other lives. It's not the same as imagining your life differently not so easy you know there 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 is a line i don't know if you know it by pessoa um where he says the feelings that hurt most the emotions that sting most are those that are absurd the longing for impossible things precisely because they are impossible nostalgia for what never was the desire for what could have been regret over not being someone else dissatisfaction with the world's existence, all these half-tones of the soul's consciousness create in us a painful landscape, an eternal sunset of what we are. Beautiful and true. I mean, we do imagine other possible lives. You know, how we might have turned out if our aunt hadn't pressured us in such a way that the expectations she had for us were unfulfillable, or the only way we could fulfill them was by writing The Mighty Franks. My brother and I have this conversation, my writer brother, the third in line, Steve, this conversation we have all the time. We say, would we be writers without the writers as examples in this family? And we don't know the answer. Possibly not. Possibly so. How, how do you do, how do you unravel all of these threads which go into making up a childhood, uh, an adolescence, an adulthood, a consciousness, a destiny? And Michael, were there to to write this memoir to to go back and to to remember, as it were? And I always love the English origin of remember which really means putting the members back together making a whole trying to form again a whole story to the best of our ability were there were there models for you in other writers who had managed or in writers indeed who had failed 
in the genre of the memoir, you know, it's so tricky. Um, there are, are books I admire greatly. I, I think Virginia Woolf's memoirs have always been very powerful examples for me. Um, certainly there was someone who was trying to capture her early life and her middle life in, in essays and in her memoir club uh, pieces from later on. More uh, recently, I had a lot of admiration for um, Andre Asimov's Out of Egypt. Uh, I thought he captured with great dis- flavor and distinction uh, a lost world and the strange workings of his own family. Um, I am a, a great admirer of Vivian Gornick's uh, fierce detachments about her mother. I think Philip Lopate's work on his family, his new book about his mother, is fascinating. But, you know, I think I also was as much uh, influenced by uh, a lifetime of reading stories and memoirs, uh, of reading Proust, of reading Alice Munro. I, I often begin my day with either a story by Munro or a study, story by Chekhov. Anything that, any piece of writing that with truth and uh, authenticity gives you the sense that you are reliving past experience has has served as a conscious or unconscious model for me in all these years. You know, I uh, on a on a phone call from Paul, I I had the pleasure of speaking with Edmund de Waal, who wrote the Here with Amber Eyes, and he he said at one moment, anxiety matters enormously because it is shared experience. Anxiety is shared experience. You mean capturing and conveying your anxiety? Yes. Is that it? Yes. We we. The experience we have, anxiety is one way, one element that we all have in common. Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Have you read The Hair with Zambies? Of course, I did several times. And he was also for a time a model for me in the scope and vividness with which he reached back into not only the visitable, but the really remote and less visitable past. Uh, and, and, the, a, and the palp- admiration for that book. And the palpable, and in a way, you know, I was thinking you you and Myra Kalman had a little conversation recently about, well, about cupboards and about that, what, what... Exactly. I think both of us are, well, yes, and, and as we know, the hair with the amber eyes takes as, as its point of departure uh, objects, and uh, my aunt was a, uh, as I write at great length in The Mighty Franks, a fierce and lifelong collector of objects, and um, I've, I've always seen in objects the possibility of uh, opening doors to stories, associations, moments in time. They were one of the things I studied most closely at my aunt's house because I thought they revealed things about her. I'm in maybe a tiny bit less sure of that now, but she herself told so many stories. Every object came with a story. I think... Um, the closets are an almost reaction against that. Myra's mother's closet is about paring down to the essential, about uh, about curating and limiting her, her material burden in the world so that she would be free to live in the moment. 
And the conversation I had with Myra was uh, about the, the parallel to that closet in my world, which was my uncle's closet, the only place in the maison in my aunt and uncle's house over which he had complete control, and where, like Sarah Berman, he curated his material uh, mark on the world, kept it very organized, very pared down, and as a result, again, as with Sarah's closet, I think, it had a kind of uh, almost ineffable quality and almost a, a, almost a kind of glow, if you will, a light that uh, was a key to his interiority that could not come out elsewhere in the house or in life. And you delighted to go there. I loved it because it was his place. It wasn't decorated, curated, organized. It wasn't a piece of... Uh, performance in quite the same way the rest of the house was. And of course, because he kept things in there that I loved. Books, manuscripts, family memorabilia, which didn't have a great position elsewhere in the house. His clothes, which he was very particular about, and from which I learned to have a certain particularity, although I was never as uh, natty a dresser as he was, and I never will be. But then when when he died, the, that that private chamber, as it were, was destroyed and, and decimated in yes, some way. Yes, it was. And this is, uh, you know, what you could spend your entire life, Paul, studying uh, a human being and thinking you know that human being inside and out, crossways and diagonal, and still she can surprise you. And I had known my aunt for over half a century, and... I had the worry that she might do this uh, thing that I'm about to describe and that you refer to, but I, on some level, some childish level in which I still hoped for a different woman to be living within the woman I knew better, uh, hoped she wouldn't do this, but she did do it, and she, uh, she emptied out my uncle's closet, had it emptied out before he was even buried, taken off to the thrift shop, given away to the housekeeper and her husband, gone in an instant. And I, uh, yeah, it was actually at that moment, really, that I, I began more avidly writing this memoir than, uh, than at any other. I knew that I would use my uncle's closet as the place to begin. And in fact, for a while, its working title was My Uncle's Closet. So the connection between between that the loss of that space and the creation of the book is powerfully intertwined. The line that went anywhere went into that closet first to try to, as it were, capture while the room was still warm all the details that had been so incomprehensibly, almost viciously, blotted out viciously out of, I see now, and didn't quite see then, out of grief. Someone, there are people I think who are made so unraveled by grief that they try to wipe away any possible catalyst for their feelings. And that's what my aunt did with my uncle's closet. Michael, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And to you, Paul, I appreciate so much your calling. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and be well.
so much. Bye-bye.